Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Fed Speak, central banking's new podcast series taking a closer look at some of the projects and developments underway in the Federal Reserve System. My name is William Towning. With us today is Rob Rich. Rob is a senior economic and um, policy advisor for the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland's research department. He is also the director of the Center for Inflation Research um, at the Cleveland Fed, which is um, part of what we will be speaking about in more detail in a moment. Before joining the Cleveland Fed in 2018, Rob was vice president um, of the research department at the New York Fed, where he was the founding editor of Liberty, Liberty Street Economics, the New York Fed's research blog. Um, today, we'll be discussing all things inflation. Um, we'll touch on some of the, the recent papers that have come out of the Center of Inflation Research, um, the impacts of COVID-19 on inflation, price level targeting, and monetarism. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thank you very much, William. Very, very happy to, to be here and appreciate the opportunity. Good. So I guess the, the center, of, center for Inflation Research, um, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, Rob, is sort of a, a standalone piece of the Fed's research, uh, the Cleveland Fed's research efforts um, with ambitions to become, I guess, a, a leading source in the study of, of all things inflation. Um, it includes a Inflation 101 section. You also link and publish um, every sort of meaningful consumer price data, charting, now casting tools. Um, and obviously, of course, you produce a lot of research and um, your own conferences. Is is that a fair summary, Rob? Um, please, yeah, take over and tell us a little bit about the the Center for Inflation Research and why it was created, where the focus has has been over the last couple of years. Uh, yes, great. Uh, so, uh, in in some sense, I mean, all Federal Reserve banks obviously, um, you know, focus on inflation as, as you know, given that it's it's you know one half of sort of the dual mandate. Um, but its background for what, you know, what forces led to the sort of founding of the Center for Inflation Research, um, it turns out that the Cleveland Fed in particular sort of has had a, uh, a long history of innovation in the analysis of inflation. So in some sense, we, we simply leveraged that, um, that innovation. Um, examples are that, uh, as, as you sort of mentioned, the, the Cleveland Fed had previously developed uh, some key measures of underlying inflation, uh, those being the median CPI, the trend mean CPI. Um, we also have a dissemination of daily inflation now cast. And as you mentioned, we had a dedicated inflation conference series. So in some sense, a lot of the research at the Cleveland Fund was already sort of being directed um, to study inflation. And so when the center was sort of established in December 2018, what we really did was sort of just draw upon this expertise and exposure. So it was sort of a natural extension of, of sort of the, the area of research where we had sort of done a lot of work and concentration. And as you mentioned, I mean, to, to kind of give background for what the center is, what its about goals happen to be, um, it very much, I mean, we think of the mantra as sort of, we try to be a leading resource for all things inflation uh, with the goal of improving the understanding of policymakers, researchers, and the public about inflation and its determinants. And so one of the things I really want to emphasize uh, is the idea that, you know, the center is very much thinking about a broad spectrum for its audience. I mean, yes, there, there are aspects of, 
of the center that are sort of geared towards researchers, but we also very much want to ensure that we're providing important information to policymakers and the public. Um, and in fact, I'll touch on that shortly in terms of some of the initiatives that we've undertaken to do that. Um, in terms of what the center does, uh, I, you touched on this, it offers a combination of research, analyses and data, and background and commentary, and then an annual inflation conference you know, um, that we have. And um, the information and the research that we produce is intended for individuals you know, whose interests range from staying informed about inflation developments to learning about recent theoretical and empirical work analyzing the inflation process. So again, this very broad spectrum, um, which I, I must say has, is, is challenging, but challenging in a good way, because you, you really want to think about how you can be impactful you know, in the widest sense possible. Um, in terms of where the focus has been um, sort of over the last couple of years, uh, so obviously having established the center, part of the focus has simply been on raising the profile and visibility of the center uh, by producing high quality research that advances our understanding of the inflation process and that, that that can be conveyed to policymakers, researchers, and the public. Again, today provides a great opportunity for us to again sort of try to enhance the visibility. So again, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to talk about the center. Uh, another thing that we, we did was we had to develop and launch a website, um, and then we periodically go in and provide enhancements uh, to the content. And as you touched on, and I would encourage people who are listening to go to our website, we have sort of 10 tiles that, that, that are there, and these tiles sort of have little sections, and, and again, they sort of tend to appeal to different segments of the audience. As you mentioned, there's an Inflation 101 section that's really geared more to the the public just to kind of give them background and it turns out actually that we've modified that now to try to make it a little bit more user-friendly there are sort of two different paths that people can can get used when they go to the inflation 101 so if you really want a just very very basic understanding of, of inflation and some of the basic concepts we have a we call it get started path um, and then there's a more technical part or path that people can take for those who are already familiar or want a little bit more technical analysis but as you mentioned, you know, we have among these sort of tiles or sections, we talk about consumer price data, explaining the differences between CPI and the PCE price index, you know, what measures of underlying inflation happen to be and what they're used for. And then some of the, the underlying measures that we've actually developed, there's the median trend CPI. Uh, a recent new product we introduced a little while ago is the median PCE inflation rate, which is another measure of underlying inflation which again goes along with the development of measures of underlying inflation that Cleveland Fed has sort of been innovative in. Um, and then there's a charting opportunity for people to go in and chart the nowcast that I talked about. We also have a section on measures of inflation expectation and then a section on, on research and, and conferences. Um, we've also, as I mentioned, been interested in developing new products um, and the median PC inflation is one example. We now have a, a dedicated annual inflation conference, and what's really nice now is that this this past conference was held in May, um, and we now co-sponsored with the European Central Bank. So very much trying to extend the the audience um, in, to both you know the U.S. and internationally. So we're, we're very excited about the opportunity that we have to co-sponsor the conference with the European Central Bank. And then um, we initiated some work on, on some projects to develop new pool tools and data sources to augment our understanding of the inflation process that can be applied to both policy work and research questions. 
Um, some of this involves collaborative work with the New York Fed and the Atlanta Fed to, to develop a, a survey of business expectations to try to get a better understanding of their pricing decisions. I think that's an area that's critically important, but I, I don't think that we really still know enough about that. We were also in the process of developing a, another survey of consumer expectations of inflation, and then also developing a, a web, web scraping project where we go in and collect price dating information to, to learn a little bit more about frequency of price changes and things along those lines. So um, that's a rather exhaustive list. Um, it, it's been keeping me and my colleagues very busy, but I, I hope that sort of helps give you some background in terms of what, you know, how the center came to be and what we've been working on over, oh, since the launch of the center. Yeah, wow, it it really does sound like a a, a very busy busy couple of years for you. It's um it's great to hear that that it's it's all going well and and you know you you're getting the the traction that that it sounds like you deserve. Um now I guess as as you mentioned, clearly inflation is is at the the core of of what the the Federal Reserve does. Um and I'd be be fascinated to to hear some more about the research which has has come out of the center in in recent months. But I guess bef before we do this, I'd I'd like to talk a, a little bit about about the pandemic. Um obviously the the US and and global economies are now facing something that that economists are going to be spending decades um analyzing and inflation is is sort of one area that's got off to a to a really fast start with you know discussions around post pandemic recovery and how in, how inflation may react um the fed chair uh, Jerome Powell has, has signaled sort of the fed's intentions to return to the the 2019 period where labor markets might appear tight by historical standards but but there was there was little inflationary pressures um about at the time um so obviously all the the recent talk on on sort of the and and the monetary expansion and it's i guess its potential implications for for inflation and then also just sort of a lot of murmurings about you know the adopt adoption of uh, a policy framework that might look to overshoot the target rather than than target the the two percent. Um, so I guess I guess sort of firstly, what are you seeing in in regards to inflation and the pandemic, and what factors um, do you expect to to govern inflation in twenty twenty and 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 twenty twenty one? Yes. Uh, well, as everyone I'm sure is aware, the the pandemic has, has you know has been unprecedented in terms of the magnitude of the shock. Um, and uh, what makes um, the pandemic, with regard to inflation, um, you know, interesting in terms of the study is that typically when we think of shocks that hit a, an economy, we typically think of the shocks as sort of you know a demand shock. Um, or sort of a supply shock. Um, what was particularly, you know, unique about this, about the pandemic, is it's not only the unprecedented magnitude, but there are elements of both sort of demand and supply effects on inflation. Obviously, the demand side effects stem from the fact that essentially you had economies shutting down, um, and so obviously there was a significant withdrawal of demand taking place. But then you also had supply effects taking place because of the supply chain disruptions that were that were occurring too. So, 
you know, typically if you know the type of shock, you typically can understand sort of what the magnitudes are going to be and what the results and impact is going to be. Um, what, what's made this sort of uh, challenging is that, you know, you've got sort of demand shocks that would be pushing you towards uh, lower inflation, potentially supply disruptions that would be pushing you towards higher inflation and trying to balance the two of them. Um, in terms of what's played out, uh, you know, over the course uh, since the pandemic that, you know, principally sort of impacted the U.S. in, in, in March, um, you know, recent inflation readings, both headline and core, have been soft. Um, while long-term inflation expectations, whether it's market-based or from professional forecasters, have remained fairly well anchored. Um, and I'll talk about this also, but what's interesting is that consumers' expectations of inflation um, either from the Cleveland Fed's weekly survey or from the University of Michigan sort of suggests they expect somewhat higher readings going forward. And I'll come back to this. In terms of what I see or what, you know, how, how to think about the path for inflation going forward, uh, not surprisingly, and, and, and you know, um, uh, Fed Chairman Powell has talked about this, uh, you know, the path for inflation like that for many other variables of interest really going to depend on the views about the development of medical intervention and to treat and prevent COVID-19 infections, the extent of public health measures to slow the spread of the virus, and how households and firms are going to react to the containment measures and the pandemic itself. Um, you know, as far as those particular supply and demand factors, um, those and, and expectations will continue to influence the outlook for inflation. So, you know, we are seeing, you know, signs of a recovery. So obviously the strength of the recovery will, will play into this. Um, we also, though, see that, you know, prices of food, energy, and imports will also impact this. So we've seen energy prices, you know, sort of rebound a little bit um, from sort of that, you know, that, that really collapse that we saw uh, back in, in March and April. Um, we've seen prices of food actually being very robust. Um, import prices have been sort of weak and I suspect will continue to act as a restraining factor. And as I mentioned before, um, it looks like long-run inflation expectations, either market-based and those from professional forecasters, have actually held up pretty well and have remained somewhat stable. So that obviously is important because uh, inflation expectations are critical or are a critical factor for the path for inflation and, and one always worries about a potential unanchoring or de-anchoring of inflation expectations. Uh, but one thing I did want to point out is that um, when it comes to measures of inflation expectations, there's been an interesting um, aspect of this, which is that consumers um, and surveys of consumers' expectations of inflation actually indicate or seem to suggest that they're expecting um, inflation either to, to rise or to be above kind of where current readings happen to be. And this evidence comes from either the Michigan survey or um, the Cleveland Fed has its own COVID-19 survey uh, that was initiated at the, at the start of the pandemic. And they go out and they, they monitor and ask consumers for their inflation expectations. And they've actually, as I mentioned, been suggesting that they expect inflate the, the, the COVID-19 um, virus to actually put upward pressure on inflation. And so that might seem strange because, you know, you, you would tend to think that with, with the impact on output being what it's been, we would expect inflation to actually have been declining. But from the consumer's perspective, I think a, an explanation for why consumers actually are expecting inflation to rise is because, you know, they've been, the, the types of prices that they've been observing, say food prices, um, they've been seeing very steady increases taking place in food prices. And the prices of other items that may have been declining, you know, uh, 
whether it's gasoline, whether it's travel accommodations, they haven't been really seeing that that much. And so for, their, for them, their perception of inflation is that the, the salient you know, price changes are the ones that have been typically pointing upwards. So um, that's an interesting you know, notion that consumers seem to be anticipating that the pandemic is actually putting upward pressure um, on inflation. Also, there tends to be some evidence to suggest that just in general, um, when times are bad, um, consumers expect higher inflation. So again, that's kind of an overview of where we see the, the near-term developments and some of the factors that are playing into both the, the most recent readings as well as the, the, um, the path going forward. And as I should mention too, that you know, we actually did see negative readings for inflation for total and core PCE uh, back in, in March and April, but then in May and June, we've actually now seen positive readings taking place. So hopefully as the economy is starting to gain traction, then we will see um, ongoing positive readings for inflation. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I guess going just touching on the the, the consumer expectations part, have you have you looked at um, a sort of a, a COVID basket of of goods and and how how inflation sort of um, sort of reacted on on a basket of goods which consumers are sort of buying during this period? So yeah, I guess taking out some of the some of the stuff which um, inflation, which which they haven't been buying, and, and inflation um, sort of impacts might be either either up or down or whatever. Have you have you looked at at, at those sort of inflation measures, or, or looked at sort of creating those those kind of inflation measures? Um, so that's a great question, and the answer is that's actually something that we're in the process of doing as part of that survey. So we're actually going in and actually trying to. Um, and I think you're suggesting this, we're actually trying to assemble kind of what you would think of as the current consumer's representative basket and getting some notion of sort of the weights uh, that they're attaching to those items and the expectation of what the price changes are associated with that and trying very much then to see if we can match up then, you know, what they're reporting for their inflation expectations and then linking that to the weights and the um, the, the actual price changes of those particular items. So that's currently work in progress, but this, this is very much consistent with what, what you were suggesting in, in terms of trying to get a, digging a little bit deeper into the, the sources for those consumer expectations being somewhat higher um, than, than sort of current inflation readings. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I'd be, be yeah, really interested to, to see how that, how that um, sort of pans out really. Um, and I'm sure sort of over time there will sort of potentially be a, a gradual sort of shift back or, or we might see in the data, uh, yeah, sort of a movement back into maybe the, the more traditional sort of basket of goods. Um, okay, and I guess moving on to to some of the work that the center's been, been producing. Um, there's one paper written by um, two of your colleagues, colleagues um, which has recently been published by this by the center and um i've actually written on this um quite recently for for central banking um and it looked into the phillips curve and its relationship to economic growth um instead of economic slack um which could you know have have quite quite interesting implications for for the current um the current situation we we find ourselves in um so i guess perhaps before i sort of move on it, it might be best if you yeah first give us a, a bit of a summary of, of what Christian and, and Willem uncovered um, about Phillips the, the Phillips curve in, in this paper. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a very interesting paper, and it's very important, as you suggested. So um, I guess the way to think about the context associated with this is that, you know, typically the Phillips curve um, has um, related inflation to a number of factors, um, you know, expectations, uh, supply, you know, supply shocks or supply side variables, but also to, to measures of activity. And the, the typical measure of activity that inflation has been related to is some sort of a, a gap measure, whether it's the unemployment gap um, or the output gap. Um, and, and the idea there being that, you know, that depending upon whether, for example, in the case of, of the unemployment gap, whether, you know, you sort of had sort of still excess uh, slack in the economy or whether you sort of were very close to, you know, having very tight conditions, that that would be influencing um, inflation. And, and so policymakers think about that because that's the way we sort of think about the transmission mechanism of, of monetary policy. Um, what's interesting is that sort of empirical studies started noting, though, that sort of starting around the mid-1980s, that linkage between these gap measures, um, these, these measures that um, sort of are relating sort of, you know, the strength of demand to, 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 um, to inflation, um, it, it seemed to become somewhat less important. Um, and then what was really apparent was that when we had the, the global financial crisis in, in starting in, in 2008, you know, in, given, given the normal view of the Phillips curve, um, and given the, the sort of high unemployment rate and, and the, the, the value of the gap, the, the, the difference between the unemployment rate and the natural rate of unemployment, everyone was anticipating that there was going to be a you know, significant slowing in inflation, if not outright deflation. Well, that didn't materialize. Um, and then, um, and going on top of that, then what we saw was this very, you know, this, re this recovery, and then towards the end of the last um, part of the expansion, we saw what everyone perceived to be extremely tight labor market conditions with the idea that there should have been sort of this, this increase in inflation taking place, and that didn't take place. So in some sense, the, the post-2008 period sort of can be characterized as episodes of both missing deflation and missing reflation. And so the question then became, well, you know, what, is there no longer a linkage between economic activity and the Phillips curve? And what... Um, Kristen and Willem actually have shown, though, is that it would appear that the role of a gap measure of activity, again, something like the unemployment gap, has diminished, but actual level of economic growth now seems to have developed and, and seems to be an important determinant of inflation. So the actual growth rate itself now seems to be, or it seems to have predicted content for, for inflation. And the reason this is important right now is that if you thought the Phillips curve were flat, um, were very, very flat, um, and you believe that the unemployment gap was the variable that would be influencing inflation, then in spite of the, the very high unemployment rate that we, we had and, and continue to sort of see, um, if it's a very flat Phillips curve, that you might not expect there to be a significant impact on inflation because it's very flat. Um, but if instead now, economic growth is the variable that's going to be influencing inflation, um, then, then the, the, the very significant slowdown and, and contraction in economic activity that we saw take place in the second quarter is going to, in fact, have a um, disinflationary effect on inflation. So the fact that it's growth and not the, the gap um, has important implications for how potentially um, the current slowdown in Q2 will actually be 
affecting the path of inflation. And as part of their article, they go in and then actually do a forecasting exercise to try to show then what the implications of, of the, the, the recession is going to be for inflation. But the key there, again, is the fact that it's going to be the, the growth variable that's going to be impacting inflation rather than the unemployment gap. And so that's going to give you a very different picture and associated outlook for inflation than, that, would, that would take place if you were only looking at the unemployment gap as the, as the measure of activity. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really, really interesting piece of work. Um, and yeah, if I, if I remember correctly, the, the, their, their forecast sort of posed some, some quite gloomy, gloomy figures for, for potential inflation um, moving, moving forward. Is, is that right? Yes, and and obviously when we we you know I, I first of all want to say and and they mentioned this also I mean there there's lots of uncertainty associated with this forecast and in the course of making the, making the the forecast themselves they have to make assumptions on whether inflation expectations are going to remain anchored um, they're going to you know also make an assumption you know is the appropriate measure of inflation expectations. Uh, um, from surveys, or is it going to be yeah. um, measured by past inflation rates? Uh, but, but you know, depending upon whether inflation expectations remain anchored or not, I mean, they do see that, you know, inflation is going to be running sort of at, at low levels. Um, and then if you, you sort of allow for the possibility that, that inflation expectations or, or inflations depend on lagged inflation, that moves down, then you're going to be seeing lower rates of inflation for longer than, than what they would have expected. So um, it, it obviously suggests that, that you're not going to see inflation staying kind of around where it's been, but in fact you would see it reacting um, to the slowdown in Q2. Yeah, yeah, that, that is interesting. And I guess at least despite the 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 potential gloominess of of it or at least the the findings are, are reassuring to to monetary policymakers in that you know it it implies that there's there's still a link between in, inflation and and activity it's it's still there it's just um, potentially taken a, a different form which um potentially is is a is a relief to 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 some policymakers uh, yeah, that's the. In fact, that's the perfect characterization, which is it's still there. It's just now. It, but I think the way you characterize it is exactly right. That it's still there. It just now seems to be a different variable that is the one that you would have to look at. So the the, the variable that's the linkage now seems to have changed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, okay, and, and the second paper um, I'd like to discuss um, is called "Aggregation Matters for for Measured." Wage growth, and this is um, this is co-authored uh, by yourself. Um, and I think I, I chose this paper because I think it's 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 interesting in the context of um, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's recent remarks about the labour market and and wage inflation, um, and the Fed's intentions to to place less weight going forward on on the the natural or, or neutral rate of unemployment um, during the recovery. Um, your paper looks at sort of un uncovering a, a more accurate picture of, of wage growth in, in recent years by um, including people who have, have recently moved house or, or have taken up new residency. Um, and by doing this, if I'm correct in saying, you found that, that wage growth may actually be um, higher than, than what has sort of previously been, been reported in, in key measures. Um, yeah, can you please 
yeah, tell us a little bit more about this this work and you know why you wanted to look into it and and what the the research entailed. Uh, I'd be happy to. So first of all, the the paper is co-authored with Joe Tracy, who's at the Dallas Fed, and sort of I I think the best way to to start the paper is just by providing a bit of background, which is. As I'm sure you're aware, there, there are lots of different wage measures um, that are out there. And, and it's important to understand, and I, I think that most economists and, and commentators understand, that these different wage measures are designed for different questions or should be are designed to answer different questions. And so really, depending upon what the particular question is that you want to investigate, you know, there are typically wage measures that are better suited to do that than others. Uh, but what typically happens, though, is um, people tend to fall into a one-size-fits-all for wage measures, which is they typically look at one wage measure to answer many different questions. Um, and that is not um, sort of that, – that kind of goes against the idea of, of, of sort of the idea of these designed wage measures to answer specific questions. So, for example – there's lots of interesting questions that people ask about wages, right? You know, is there a wage price spiral? Are workers, you know, have they received increases in, in real wages? Uh, that is to say, is there, you know, is there real purchasing power increased? Um, you know, there's also questions about the cyclicality of wages. You know, what are wages telling about telling us about conditions in the labor market? Um, so to, to try to give a, a quick summary of what, what Joe and I basically did is we just went in and, and we thought about, this idea of aggregation, how you combine data or how you weight data in order to measure wage growth. And um, what we decided to do was we looked at a very popular measure of wages, um, average hourly earnings, which is uh, a measure that um, is typically referenced a lot and, and looked at. And um, it's a measure of an average wage. And then if you want to look at wage growth, you just compute the, the growth rate of that wage measure. Um, and then in contrast to that, uh, what Joe and I wanted to do is we went into the current population survey and we looked at individuals and, and what we did is we computed their growth rate, their reported wages over a 12-month period. And the difference between the, the two approaches is the following. Um, in the case of our average wage growth measure, as I said, what Joe and I did is we went into the, the current population survey, we looked at workers, we went ahead, we computed their 12-month their growth rate, and then for a given month, what we simply did then is average what that growth rate happened to be. And we call that measure average wage growth. So it's really nothing more than computing a growth rate across workers and then taking an average. Then what we did is we looked at what happens if you measure wage growth by computing the growth rate and average hourly earnings. And after you do some math, what comes out of that is that there's an implicit weighting that takes place of individual workers' wage growth in average hourly earnings. But in contrast to our weighting where you weight everyone equally, if you look at the growth of average hourly earnings, what one of the components in that is you're weighting workers' wage growth by their earnings. In other words, workers who earn more relative to others get a higher weight with their associated wage growth. Right. The importance of this is that high earners have very different properties compared to low-wage earners. For example, high earners typically have lower wage growth. That's because they, 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 they actually tend to experience much faster wage growth when they're younger. And when they're older, their wage growth tends to be lower, even though it's at a much higher level. 
also, um, uh, high-earning workers tend to have uh, less cyclicality with their wages. They, they tend to respond less to the, the business cycle or, or the unemployment gap and things like that. And so what we basically found then was that because of the fact that you're weighting, you're weighting these growth rates differently across these two measures, you may end up getting very different answers to some of these questions. And what Joe and I showed was that if you look at this average wage growth measure, which again actually is sort of similar to what the Atlanta Fed does with something called their, their wage, wage growth tracker, if you look at that measure, it turns out that workers have actually, in terms of real purchasing power, been doing better than what you would have seen if you measured it using average hourly earnings. And then what we also showed was movements in average wage growth are much more tied in and much more informative about labor market conditions than average hourly earnings growth. So to try to come full circle and tie this back in, there was a, a, a bit of a concern or a quandary which was towards the end of the last expansion, uh, there was this question, why aren't, why aren't wages growing faster? If labor markets are as tight as they should be, we should be seeing higher wage growth. The answer is yes, there was higher wage growth, but if you, 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 and you would see it by looking at average wage growth, but not the growth in average hourly earnings. And so this is just an example where, again, thinking carefully about the question and finding what we think is the more suitable measure can give you a very different answer. And that was the basis for, for what the analysis was doing. Um, and I should just be very clear, we're not suggesting that average hourly earnings growth is not informative or useful. That's not what we're saying. We're simply saying, though, it's useful for other sorts of questions. But if you're asking questions, how is the average worker doing, or how are labor markets translating into wage growth, something like average wage growth is going to give you a much more informed answer. Right. Okay. That's yeah. That's really interesting. It's, it explains a lot. Um, and so, I guess why why do you think that that wage growth, you know, might not be feeding into to high inflation um, or, or high sort of standard measures of of inflation? Is is it this? Is it because you know it's it's the different measures of of wage growth are you know they're, they're suitable for for different things and it's it's just about you know, looking at potentially different measures of inflation. But yeah, yeah, what why why do you think that, that inflation, you know, wasn't wasn't moving up when, you know, your your research shows that there there was there was sort of wage wage growth sort of pressures going on. Oh, that's a yeah, that's a great question. So let me let me start by giving a very simple example because uh to try to clarify this and then I'll 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 use that to to, to you know, provide a, a fuller answer. So let me just think of a very simple example. Um, imagine that you have two firms, and imagine that you have a worker at at, at one firm who's retiring, um, and you imagine then that person retires, and then you have a worker at this other firm that moves in, replaces that worker, receives that worker's wage, but that wage is higher than what that that previous worker's wage was. So that worker who moves to the other firm is now receiving a higher wage and is experiencing higher wage growth. But if that worker is receiving the same wage as the previous worker, then the wage bill to that firm hasn't changed. So as a consequence of that, even though at the individual level, 
the, the worker, you've seen positive wage growth at the individual worker level, it doesn't necessarily translate into a larger wage bill. And so then getting back to my, my point before, the average wage growth measure that we're looking at, we argue, in fact, is not the way to think about measuring the wage bill that firms face. That, that in fact, average hourly earnings would be a better measure of wage bill and wage bill pressures on the inflation rate. So part of the reason we didn't see wages, um, even though we're saying wage growth increased for individual workers, that was based on average wage growth. That isn't necessarily the best measure of sort of showing how the wage bill of firms necessarily increased or not. And so that's sort of why it, it's consistent. So at first it might seem odd, but I think, again, it comes to this idea of throwing around the word wage and not being very specific about it, what, it, what it happens to mean. So. Um, I hope that answers your question, but again, the, the, the wage measure that might be a more, more appropriate for gauging inflationary pressures really didn't show a lot of increase, um, whereas the average wage growth measure that we're looking at, which is saying how were workers doing, actually showed they were doing better. And again, a lot of this has to do with job-to-job -job transition. So that's a, that's a major part of what was increasing or putting pressure on average wage growth and allowing it to increase. Yeah, that that very much does answer answer my question. Um, and yeah, potentially I'm I'm one of one of the guilty ones for 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 throwing around the world the word uh, wage growth, I guess, a bit too often because yeah, that that makes total sense. And so to to close, there there are sort of two topics I'd I'd like to to discuss, and and the first is um, inflation targeting. Obviously, there's there's been a, a lot of discussion recently um, and during the, the Fed's monetary framework review about the the optimal inflation target. Um, several FOMC members and, and former Fed chairs have, have also sort of outlined their their support or, or their, their, their favoring for, for, for a target which which overshoots the 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 two percent target temporarily. Um, so I'm obviously not not asking you to, to comment on on any of that, but I'd be yeah, I'd be interested in, in what sort of insight the, the center has on um, an inflation target which would temporarily overshoot the target. Is there is there evidence that, that such a such an adjustment could support um, could support the, the economy during a, a recovery um, like what we've we've got now? So, in terms of speaking directly to the framework and and you know the, that particular aspect, I, I really don't want to provide a comment on, on the framework uh, directly. But but as you mentioned, I, what I can certainly do is talk about the fact that there's been research, you know, talk about research at a very high level and just mention that, um, and as you noted, that, you know, there's been research looking at potentially various ways to, um, especially at the zero lower bound, various ways to try to, you know, make monetary policy um, more effective. And so, you know, the, there's been work on price level targeting by um, work by Mike Woodford and Gary Eggerston, um, which is, you know, one possible means by which you can think about, especially the zero lower bound, giving some more potency to monetary policy. Um, former chairperson Bernanke has talked about sort of um, temporary price level targeting, where essentially you stay within an inflation targeting regime, except when you hit the zero lower bound and you switch to sort of price level targeting. 
And then also there's been some discussion, mostly outside the Fed, about the possibility of raising the inflation rate. Um, and, and in terms of that, what I just wanted to comment was that one of my colleagues, Raphael Shunle, has actually shown that, you know, while there has been discussion, again, mostly outside of the Fed, about raising the inflation target, he's actually shown in, in a research paper that, that it may not, raising the inflation target may not get you as much potential benefit um, as you might expect. And this just has to do with the fact that as you raise the inflation target, you change the environment for firms, they may change prices more frequently, and that'll end up making prices more flexible. And so while some people have thought about raising the inflation target as a possibility, and that that might actually um, provide a, a better way of, of sort of um, maintaining um, stability in the economy and giving the, the, the monetary authority more opportunity to kind of cut rates, it, you may not gain as much as you had thought. So um, I think that's just an overview of some of the research that would all could be used to answer this particular question, but I would prefer to sort of not comment on the framework itself. Yes, of course. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's really interesting. And um, I believe I've, I've read the paper, which you were, you're referring to about there potentially being benefits of, of raising the inflation target, but potentially not as much as, as previously thought. Um, okay. Um, and I guess lastly, I'd I'd like to hear hear you out on on monetarism. Um, and now monetarism monetarism has obviously had a had a rocky history. Uh, many sort of disciples of of Milton Friedman argued that that high inflation would would result from monetary expansion um, during the during the global financial crisis, but were um, sort of obviously proved to to be wrong. Um, and for me, for someone who isn't really a, a monetarist, monetarist, and and I lean more to the to the credit side of things, um, I guess. Um, I find, but I I do find myself a little sort of sympathetic to some of the some of the circles out there which have have raised concerns about central banks in in general um, not placing um, a lot of weight on on the theories of of monetarism in the the current sort of COVID response. Um, so just sort of looking at the, the, the St. Louis um, Fed's measure of, of M3, it's risen, um, if my calculations are, are correct, has risen 16% from February to May this year, obviously at a time when US output has, has contracted. Um, and wherever one stands on, on monetarism, obviously the, the experience from late Paul Volcker um, in the 1970s and 18 suggested at least some merit to the idea. Um, so now, and I obviously I'm not asking you to, to comment on any sort of policy actions taken by the Fed or, or other central banks, but I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on monetarism um, and whether sort of money, money driven inflation is, is something that's, you know, could be on the cards um, as we enter future phases of, of, of the recovery. So I think I'll answer the question by perhaps offering an explanation as to why the the large increase in, in sort of the money supply has not translated into inflation, and, and perhaps that might be a, a, a way of, of getting it to sort of part of the answer. So, you know, the, the basic monetary principle, which would be that sort of money times velocity equals nominal GDP – and so the, the, the belief was, well, if you increase the money supply, 
then you're going to sort of raise nominal GDP. But if you raise it a lot, output can't really respond as much. And so you're just going to generate higher inflation. So the idea was expanding the monetary, you know, the money supply rapidly or, or large increases in the money supply will lead to large inflation. Um, and so that will be true if, for example, if it turns out that sort of velocity stays constant. So I think a lot of what has lied behind this idea, and you're absolutely right about the fact that there's been sort of, you know, a, a fairly significant amount of liquidity and expansion in, in, in various money supplies, um, measures of the money supply. But what's also happened is that coinciding with that large increase and in expansion in the money supply has also been a fairly significant decline in velocity. And I think there's several factors that you can point to in terms of this decline in velocity. I mean, it sort of started in the late 1990s, but it's been particularly pronounced over the last 10 years. And so I, I, I think one of the simple explanations for this is that while we do have a lot of reserves in the banking system, they have not translated into loan growth and spending. So one of those channels that typically is associated with sort of the, the large expanse of reserves, the idea would be, oh, that's gonna generate large loan growth, that's gonna translate into spending. Um, that hasn't materialized. Um, the, these reserves have not translated into loan growth. I mean, part of the reason might be that we've been in a low rate environment, so banks just have not sort of seen an opportunity to, to lend a lot. And um, also the, the fact that we instituted interest on excess reserves, banks now, you know, the have an opportunity to keep their reserves with them and actually receive, you know, interest on it. So that, that's been an important development also for having banks keep, you know, the amount of reserves and the excess reserves that they have. Also, I think you could also argue there's just greater uncertainty or has been greater uncertainty in the economic outlook, and that may have also um, led banks to undertake less lending. And um, it may also be the case, too, that we just haven't seen sort of individuals sort of increasing their demand for loans as much as they would have. Um, and there's also some evidence to suggest that a lot of the liquidity that, that individuals or households have has actually been used, they're either holding onto that cash or paying off debt. So I think the traditional monetary view of this is you increase, you know, the money supply, this goes into, you know, spending on goods and services, and so that's the typical assumption, but we really haven't seen that. Um, these exchanges have not gone into exchanges for goods and services, they've gone into exchanges of financial assets, and again, just as you've seen that M going up, you've seen V going down to sort of compensate for it. And hence, you haven't seen this large surge in inflation that, that I think those people, the tenants of monetary, you know, monetarism would tend to expect. And again, the key to this is recognizing that there's been this, this significant ongoing decline in velocity. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, like you sort of point out, there's a the, the kind of exchanges and potentially it's 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 a feature of our, our sort of modern modern economies and and how the, how the financial system is, is set up obviously haven't haven't happened as they they potentially would have um when monetarism um was sort of in 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 its prime i guess um so yeah it's it's really interesting and and it's an area that i'll i'll continue to to follow Okay, um, I think that's that's all we have have time for today, and um, I just want to want to thank you so much for for such an interesting conversation. Um, I hope that if we if we have learned anything today, it's that you know one can never stop trying to to understand inflation, and uh, I'm I'm glad that the the ever increasing facets of of inflation will continue to be 
to be looked at at, at the Federal Reserve's um, or the, the the Cleveland Fed, sorry, the, the Cleveland Fed Center for fun, for for inflation research. So um, yeah, it's been a it's been a pleasure, Rob. So thank you very much. Well, William, again, let me let me thank you for the opportunity. I, I've enjoyed speaking with you. I very much enjoyed the questions that you asked. I, I hope that uh, I've helped answer them. And again, I would like to encourage everyone who's listening to to visit the Center for Inflation Research website. Um, and again, um, there's an opportunity also, I just quickly mentioned, we, we send out sort of a quarterly email update um, to those people who subscribe to the, to the center. And that's a way for people to keep updated on the research that we're doing, the new products that we develop, conferences, things along those particular lines. Um, so again, um, I encourage people to, to visit the center. If they have any feedback they'd like to give us, thank, you know, we'd be very appreciative of that. But again, I wanted to thank you for the opportunity to talk today. I've really enjoyed it a great deal. And uh, again, wanted to thank you for the opportunity for, for us to, to sort of bring more visibility to the center. No, thank you. And, and yeah, I encourage everyone else to, to also um, to, to have a look at the, the, the website and, and, and sign up to the newsletter. It's some, some great stuff coming out. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, William, very, very much. Mm-hmm.